As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. When he said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, it is he. Others were saying, no, but it's someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, go to the Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes, then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. The man said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who'd received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that now he sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who'd been blind and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? The man answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. What do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, here is an astonishing thing. 
You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sin, and are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they'd driven him out. And when he found the man, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I might believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking to you is he. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see, and so that those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees heard Jesus because they were near him, and they said, surely we are not blind, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. The Gospel of the Lord. I hinted a couple of weeks ago by way of a disclaimer during my sermon about Nicodemus that it can be hard and risky, dangerous even to preach on some of these gospel texts about the Pharisees, considering the bad rap that Jews and Pharisees get week after week and passage after passage and verse after verse especially in the Gospels of John and Matthew. It's hard and it's risky and it's dangerous because so many people throughout history have used this negative characterization of the Jews and the Pharisees to perpetuate hateful, destructive, sinful, anti-Semitic beliefs over the years and to justify all of that in the name of faith. So it's worth knowing a few things that matter about the Pharisees. Then, back in the days of Jesus, and still now here for us. The Pharisees have become a caricature for some and a really easy target for our judgment and our condemnation by way of Holy Scripture. Because of what we read there and because of the example Jesus seems to make of them so much of the time as being hypocrites, religious zealots, gatekeepers of the synagogue, arbiters of the law and of works righteousness at the expense of love and mercy and grace. And there were some Pharisees and Sadducees and other Jews who believed and who behaved in those ways for sure. But there were also Pharisees who respected Jesus, who invited him to meals without ulterior motives, who helped him when he was in trouble, 
and who continued to help the apostles in the early days of their ministry too. Nicodemus, remember, a Pharisee and a leader of the Jews, ended up following Jesus after they'd had their late-night discussion. He defended Jesus against his accusers on the way to the cross, and he took care of his body and helped to bury it in the tomb after Jesus was crucified. The Apostle Paul himself was a Pharisee. Even in today's gospel, the Pharisees were divided, if you noticed that. Some thought Jesus couldn't possibly be faithful because he broke the law by healing on the Sabbath, but there were others that day who thought he must be worth something because he'd done this thing. He'd worked this miracle. He'd given this guy his sight back. All of this is to say, as I said really quickly a few weeks ago, in these times when anti-Semitism is rearing its ugly, sinful head in some ever-prolific, surprising kinds of ways, that when I make note of the flaws of the Pharisees in Scripture, I do that not because they are Jewish, as too many misguided souls believe, and not even because all Pharisees are bad. I do it because the ones who confound and confront Jesus so often look and smell and act a lot like religious people of all kinds in this world as we know it. As I like to say, these particular Pharisees are meant to be more like reflections in our mirror than they are meant to be targets of our self-righteous judgment and condemnation. And today's episode with Jesus, the Pharisees, the blind man, and his neighbors, this episode is an example of that, particularly the exchange between the Pharisees, also called the Jews, and the formerly blind guy's parents. I was particularly fascinated and saddened this time around by the notion that the man's parents were so afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue that they couldn't even speak the truth about their son's experience. Did you catch that? When they were asked about what woulda, coulda, shoulda been the great joy of their son having been healed and receiving his sight, they were like, yeah, that's our boy. He used to be blind. He can see now, but don't ask us how it happened. Ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. They were afraid, we're told, because anyone known to confess Jesus as the Messiah, anyone following this new way, anyone not following the rules of what faithfulness was supposed to look like according to their standards would get the boot just as their son eventually did, according to this story. He was driven out. So this caught my attention this time around because I saw a modern-day example of it just this week. A woman posted a letter she got from her church, signed by three men from the congregation's board of elders. The letter, littered with passages and citations from Scripture, said this. 
For the last several weeks, we have noted that you have stopped attending the assembly of the church. After attempts to discuss this situation with you, we fear that you are no longer convinced in the need to assemble with the church for which Christ died. <laughs> we are very saddened by your decision. The failure to assemble is not the only problem that you must address. We've been informed and understand that you have a living arrangement that is not biblical and must be terminated immediately. This action alone reflects that you have not avoided all appearances of evil as the scripture directs us, 1 Thessalonians 5, 22. Please understand our obligation as shepherds. First, we must watch for your soul, Hebrews 13, 17. And second, protect the congregation by withdrawing from every brother or sister that walks disorderly. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. If these issues are not corrected and public repentance made, we will withdraw fellowship. I don't know anything more about this church, that woman, the elder board, or the three guys who wrote her that letter. But it was a not-so-nice reminder about the truth that anyone and everyone can misuse religion and scripture and blame all sorts of ugliness on God and the certainty we wish we could find there that we pretend too much of the time exists more often than could possibly be true. Which is the lesson I was reminded of by way of this morning's gospel this time around and one that we can't hear too often. First, that Jesus is more interested in forgiving sin than in punishing it. Second, when Jesus hears that that man had been driven from the synagogue and pushed from the fold, Jesus goes after him. And when he finds the man, Jesus is as curious as I think he believes we should be more often. Jesus asks the guy if he believes instead of telling him what to believe. And then Jesus reminds him of what he's already seen and what he's already experienced of God's grace in his life. You have seen him, he says. I was the one with the mud and the spit, remember? The one speaking with you is he. That, for my money, is like saying, forget about what these knuckleheads have said and what they've done and what they think they know. You have seen me. You've experienced God's grace. You know who I am. Their certainty clouds their vision. Their single-mindedness about who God is and about doing things the way things have always been done limits their ability to experience God most fully. Their black and white, cut and dried, right and wrong worldview forgets that God is always up to something new and better and different in and for and through us. And we are blessed and better when we look for those surprises and when we find ways to share them rather than resist them at every turn. Now, it feels slightly 
more faithful and fun and a little bit satisfying, if we're honest, to point fingers at some fellow Christians in all of this, much like everyone in that story about the blind guy was Jewish in one way or another, including Jesus. But let's keep to the notion that all of this is about holding up a mirror, not throwing our own batch of self-righteous stones. And let's wonder who it is we are quick to judge and how. Prisoners? Prostitutes? Addicts? People of other ages? Or races? Or gender identities? People of other faiths? Or denominations of our own, even? What are we fast to condemn ourselves and drive out from our midst? The woke mob? The far right? The Democrats? The Republicans? Anyone who challenges our worldview or our familiar, comfortable way of doing things? In what ways do we dismiss God's ability to work in the lives of others who don't live or move or breathe or practice their faith or believe in ways that make sense to us. So let's learn to open the eyes of our hearts more often as that song sings. Let's believe that God's vision of the kingdom and for the church is bigger than we are always willing or able to see. And let's have faith that this kind of grace can change us, that it can show us something new and holy and different about the world as we know it, that even if it's just a glimpse, it's worth seeing and it's worth sharing until all people and each of us are seen as worthy of the love God brings in Jesus. Amen. Amen.